This is Space Time, Series 22, Episode 43, for broadcast on the 12th of June, 2019. Coming up on Space Time... NASA looking for answers after the drill on the Mars InSight lander fails. New research which could explain the differences between the Moon's near and far sides. And NASA ramping up its return to the Moon. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA scientists and engineers are trying to figure out why a key instrument on its Mars InSight lander has suddenly stopped working. The heat probe, or mole, was designed to dig down up to 5 metres below the red planet's surface in order to record Martian subsurface temperatures. But the self-hammering spike stopped digging at the end of February after reaching a depth of just 30 centimetres. And the thing is, no one's really sure why it stopped. One of the problems is that the instrument's support structure stops the lander's cameras from actually seeing the mole. NASA mission managers plan to use InSight's robotic arm to try and lift the structure out of the way. And depending on what they see, the team might use InSight's robotic arm to help the mole further in coming months. The mole is one of several experiments designed to give scientists their first look at the red planet's deep interior. Inside also includes a seismometer which recently recorded its first mass quakes, with some registering up to magnitude 3. For several months now, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, which leads the InSight mission, together with the German Aerospace Center DLR, which developed the Heat Flow and Physical Properties Package, or HP-cubed instrument, which includes the mole, have been working to try and understand what's preventing the mole from digging. Engineers and scientists believe the most likely cause could be an unexpected lack of friction in the soil around InSight, something very different from soils seen on other parts of Mars. See, the mole's designed so that loose soil flows around it, adding friction that works against recoil and thereby allowing it to dig deeper. The problem is, without enough friction, the mole could just sit there bouncing in place. Moving the support structure will help engineers gather more information to try and test at least one possible solution. Inside Instrument Systems Engineer Troy Lee Hudson from NASA's JPL says the lifting sequence will begin in a few weeks. Then, over the course of about a week, the arm will lift the structure in three steps, taking images and returning them to mission control so engineers can make sure the mole isn't being pulled out of the ground as the structure's being moved. See, the problem is, if the mole is removed from the soil, it can't go back in. So, as you can see, it's not a procedure without risk. However, mission managers have decided these steps are necessary if they want to get the instrument working again. Hudson says moving the support structure will give his team a better idea of what's happening and could also allow them to test a possible solution, using InSight's robotic arm to sort of pad down and compact the soil around the mole, hopefully in the process increasing friction in the soil. InSight is a mission to study the deep interior of Mars. It has many science instruments to do this, one of which is HP-cubed, a sort of planetary thermometer. A key component of HP-cubed is called the mole, sort of a self-hammering nail that drives its way into the ground. And when we first commanded it to do this penetration, it did so beautifully, but at a certain point, it stopped making forward progress. The mole started out in this vertical tube, and when we commanded the mole to start digging, it released and started making progress millimeter by millimeter into the ground. At a certain point, it began to tilt 
and around approximately 10 centimeters above the surface of the ground, it stopped making progress. So at this point, we believe the mole is still partially within the support structure, pointing at about a 20 degree tilt to the southwest. It could be the case that the mole has encountered an external obstruction, like a rock. But another possibility is that the soil at InSight is providing us less friction than we expected. And the mole needs friction to make forward progress. JPL, working along with DLR, the German space agency who provided the mole, have been trying to understand what the problem is and come up with a plan of action. We can't get a clear picture of what's happening with the mole. The support structure is in the way, so we need to pick up the support structure and move it elsewhere. We've been practicing that lift here in the test bed with models of the arm and the support structure. The lift has to be done carefully in three stages, small moves, so we can look at the data and, among other things, ensure that we're not inadvertently extracting the mole. Once we move the support structure and get a clear view of what's going on with the mole, we want to use the robotic arm again to help it. Our first choice is to come in with the scoop on the robotic arm and press flat on the soil above the mole. This may increase the friction at the mole, giving it that extra nudge it needs to start making progress. This is unexplored territory. The mole is going somewhere we cannot see and have never been before. To get that crucial number, the heat flow of Mars. As a scientist, I want to get that number. And as an engineer, I want to see the instrument we've worked on for a decade do the thing it was designed to do. That's Insight Instrument Systems Engineer Troy Lee Hudson from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. A new study suggests that the asymmetry seen between the moon's near and far sides may have been caused by a massive impact with a dwarf planet early in the solar system's history. The findings, reported in the Journal of Geophysical Research Planets, are based on computer simulations trying to explain why the crust on the moon's far side is far thicker than that on the nearer Earth-facing side. This difference in crust thickness has been cited as the likely cause for the stark difference between the moon's mountainous, heavily cratered far side and the lower-lying open basalt plains on the near side. Mystery about the moon's two faces began in October 1959, when the then-Soviet Union's Lunar 3 spacecraft took the first images of the lunar far side, a region never before seen by humans. More detailed images taken by probes and Apollo astronauts during the 1960s raised more intrigue and speculation by scientists. The first hints as to what was actually going on came through measurements made by the Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory, or GRAIL, mission to the Moon in 2012. GRAIL revealed details about the structure of the Moon, including how its crust is thicker and includes an extra layer of material on its far side. There have been numerous ideas to try and explain this asymmetry on the Moon. One is that there were once two moons orbiting the Earth, and they emerged very early in the Moon's formation. Another idea is that a large body, perhaps a young dwarf planet, found itself in an orbit around the Sun, which put it on a collision course with the Moon. This dwarf planet impact scenario would have happened sometime later than the merging Moon scenario, and after the Moon had formed a solid crust. The New Study's lead author, Meng Zhu from the Macau University of Science and Technology, says signs of an impact should be visible in the structure of the lunar crust today. 
The Grell findings gave Hugh's team a clearer target to aim for with computer simulations they used to test different moon impact scenarios. The authors ran some 360 computer simulations of giant impacts with the moon in order to determine whether such an event could reproduce the crust of today's moon as detected by Grail. They found the best fit for today's asymmetrical moon would involve a large body, a dwarf planet about 780 kilometres or so in diameter, slamming into the near side of the moon at around 22,500 kilometres per hour. Now, that would equate to a body only slightly smaller than the dwarf planet Ceres, moving at a speed just a quarter that of an average meteor shower. The authors say another good fit would involve an asteroid about 720 kilometres wide, impacting the moon at about 24,500 kilometres per hour. Under both these scenarios, the models show the impact would have thrown up vast amounts of material that would eventually fall back onto the moon's surface, burying the primordial crust on the far side in up to 10 kilometres of debris. Zhu says that's the added layer of crust detected on the far side by Grail. He says the study rules out the idea that the impactor could have been an early second moon of the Earth. Whatever the impactor was, an asteroid or a dwarf planet, it was probably on its own orbit around the Sun when it encountered the Moon. This impact model also provides a good explanation for the unexplained differences in isotopes of potassium, phosphorus and rare Earth elements like tungsten-182 between the surfaces of the Earth and the Moon. The authors say these elements could very well have come from the impact, which would have added that material to the Moon after its formation. So, this new study not only provides an answer for ongoing questions about the Moon's asymmetry, but may also provide an insight into the structure of other asymmetrical worlds in our solar system, including Mars, which is a low-altitude northern hemisphere, and a far more mountainous and cratered southern hemisphere. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Now, while we're talking about our nearest celestial neighbour, NASA has selected three commercial lunar landing service providers to deliver science and technology payloads under its Artemis program. NASA's Artemis lunar exploration plans are based on a two-phased approach. The first is focused on landing astronauts back on the moon by 2024, while the second will establish a sustained human presence both on and around the moon by 2028. The move follows the allocation of an additional $1.6 billion by the White House to NASA's 2020 budget for the Manned Lunar Missions Program. The program is named Artemis, who was the sister of Apollo in Greek mythology. Apollo, of course, being the name of the initial manned moon landing program in the 1960s and early 70s. If the additional funding is approved by the Democrat-controlled Congress, it'll mean none of NASA's existing projects will be affected other than the Lunar Gateway Space Station planned for translunar orbit and designed to act as a staging post for missions to the Moon's surface. Gateway would be reduced to an initial two modules, one for power and propulsion, the other for crew habitat. That change would allow the reallocation of $321 million to other aspects of the project. As well as the Lunar Gateway, NASA is also looking at establishing a manned base on the lunar surface, probably near the South Pole. In order to achieve that aim, NASA is hoping to launch no fewer than 37 missions to the Moon over the next decade, five of those carrying astronauts. Of course, NASA isn't alone in its lunar ambitions. China has already announced plans to establish a base on the Moon in order to eventually undertake helium-3 mining. The three commercial lunar landing service providers will carry NASA-provided payloads undertaking scientific investigations and demonstrating advanced technologies designed to pave the way for NASA astronauts to land on the lunar surface within five years. 
Three providers are Astrobotic of Pittsburgh, which will carry up to 14 payloads, the Lycus Mortis, a large crater on the near side of the moon, by July 2021. Intuitive Machines of Houston plan to fly as many as five payloads to Oceanus Procellarum, a scientifically intriguing dark spot on the moon, also by July 2021. And the New Jersey company Orbit Beyond will transport four payloads to Mare Imbrium, a lava plane on one of the moon's craters, by September next year. The potential payloads include instruments that will conduct new lunar science, pinpoint lander positions, measure the lunar radiation environment, assess how both lander and astronaut activity will affect the moon, and assist with navigation precision. Each partner will provide end-to-end commercial payload delivery services to NASA, including payload integration and operations, launch from Earth, and landing on the surface of the moon. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. NASA has announced plans to launch sounding rockets from a new space base to be built in Australia's Northern Territory. The new privately operated launch complex will be built in Arnhem Land. It'll be the first time NASA's launched rockets from a non-government-owned launch facility. NASA's launched rockets from Australia before, but like the Australian government, those rockets were launched from the Woomera rocket range in outback South Australia. The new Arnhem Space Centre site was chosen because of its proximity to the equator, thereby using the spin of the Earth to provide added boost for launch vehicles and their payloads. The developers say the new spaceport could eventually include different launch pads, allowing a variety of both orbital and suborbital rockets to be flown for a range of government, commercial and research organisations. The company behind the project, Equatorial Launch Australia, was awarded the launch contract by NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre. It will provide launch services for what's described as a temporary Southern Hemisphere launch facility for conducting scientific investigations. The announcement follows approval for the project by both the traditional owners of the land and the Northern Land Council. NASA says it will launch four sounding rockets from the Arnhem Space Centre next year. Sounding rockets are small research missiles designed to carry scientific instruments on suborbital ballistic flights. They often use surplus military missile rocket motors and technology. They're designed to fill the gap between scientific weather balloons, which have a maximum altitude of around 40 kilometres, or 131,000 feet, and the lowest possible flying satellites, which would orbit at around 121 kilometres, or 397,000 feet. Mind you, not all sounding rockets are designed for purely suborbital missions. Rockets like the Black Brand 10 and 12 have been built up with additional booster stages to achieve altitudes of up to 1,500 kilometres, or alternatively accelerate their payloads to orbital speeds. NASA routinely flies the Terrier Mark 70 boosted improved Orion sounding rocket. It's capable of carrying 450 kilogram payloads to altitudes of over 200 kilometres, 656,000 feet. The Australian move is quite a change for NASA. The agency usually launches sounding rockets from its Wallops Island flight facility on the Virginian mid-Atlantic coast, the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, the Poker Flight Research Range in Alaska, the US Army's Reagan test site in the Marshall Islands, or two sites north of the Arctic Circle, Sweden's Esrange Space Center, and on the Norwegian island of Endoya. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. In what some are describing as the next big revolution in the internet, but others are calling a blow to astronomy, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket has carried the first 60 Starlink satellites into orbit. 
The launch from Space Complex 40 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida had been delayed by a week due to high winds and the need for a last-minute software update. And Falcon 9 is on internal power. 2 minutes, 15 seconds. Falcon 9 is configured for flight. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition, liftoff. Vehicles pitching downrange. Visual propulsion nominal. At operation securing, step section 59 on LVNet. Power telemetry nominal. The Falcon 9 as it ascends through the Falcon atmosphere carrying the SpaceX Starlink payload of satellites. Coming up in just a few seconds here, the vehicle is going to be passing through max Q. That is the point of maximum aerodynamic pressure on the vehicle. The vehicle is experiencing maximum aerodynamic pressure. All telemetry looks nominal from that first stage right now, and trajectories look good. You can Recovery see the exhaust gases of those nine Merlin engines expanding as it gets further and further up into the atmosphere. Stand by for Miko. Stage separation confirmed. We just had a very a good. Miko, we had a good stage separation and we had a good second engine start. That second stage is now burning brightly, accelerating the Starlink stack towards its deployment altitude. We've jettisoned that payload fairing from the top of the rocket. The Merlin vacuum engine uh, currently burning brightly, doing its first of two burns to raise those satellites up to their deployment altitude of 440 kilometers above the Earth. The next step for the second stage is going to be SECO-1. That's going to happen at 8 minutes and 47 seconds. This will be the third third time that we have attempted to recover this first stage, this particular first stage. We are not doing a boost back burn today. This is because boost back burns are typically used to cancel out the horizontal velocity of a first stage as it goes away from the, uh, the launch pad and then bring it back towards the Cape. For tonight, we're doing a drone ship landing on Of Course I Still Love You, so we just position the drone ship out in the Atlantic Ocean Second and catch it at the end of its trajectory. Parabola. No need for a boost back burn here. Without a boost back burn, the next step coming up for the first stage will be the entry burn at T plus 6 minutes and 23 seconds. The entry burn will last for approximately 20 seconds and then shut down and then after that we'll be heading towards a landing burn. All telemetry looks good from that second stage as it continues to pick up speed towards that intended deployment altitude. So as I said earlier the first stage is now about to start its entry burn at six minutes and 23 seconds. This entry burn is uh, to slow that first stage down just a little bit before it hits the thicker regions of the atmosphere. It's dark stage but one, in a few minutes those Merlin in, uh, engines at the bottom of that first stage will light up and there stage they go. One, entry burn is started. That is the start of the entry burn. And stage one, entry burn shutdown. The next step for that first stage is going to be the landing burn. Stage one is transonic. Also signal stage one, Cape Canaveral, as expected. All telemetry is nominal on the second stage as it continues to accelerate. Next big thing happening here is going to be the landing burn at T plus eight minutes and nine seconds. Stage one, landing burn is started. Vehicles we may be able to get guidance. something from the drone ship. You stage can tell here at SpaceX headquarters we haven't yet gotten any video from the drone ship, but we're just waiting for confirmation. And this is recovery. Falcon 9 has landed and landing operators moving to procedure 11.100 on recovery 1 and ECF 9. We are expecting SECO to happen shortly. That is second engine cutoff. Back shut down. It sounds like we may have confirmation that the first stage has landed. Uh, while that was happening, we did have our second engine cutoff one. Uh, that's the end of the second stage's first burn. And we did have confirmation of a good orbit for that second stage. Falcon 9 first stage successfully landed on the drone ship, of course, I still love you, which had been pre-positioned downrange in the North Atlantic Ocean. The same first stage had previously been used for the Telstar 18 Vantage mission in September 2018 and the Iridium 8 mission in January this year.
52 minutes after launch, deployment began of the Starlink satellites at an altitude of 440 kilometres. Built by SpaceX, each flat panel Starlink satellite weighs approximately 227 kilograms and is equipped with KU-band transponders. The satellites use their own onboard Krypton ion propulsion systems to manoeuvre themselves into their pre-programmed orbits at altitudes of between 550 and 36,000 kilometres. Although there were only 60 satellites in this launch, remember when we thought 60 was a lot for a single rocket launch? Starlink will eventually be a constellation of some 12,000 small satellites, providing direct-to-phone or tablet high-speed broadband internet service. If all goes according to plan, Starlink will become operational after another 12 launches, when some 800 of the satellites will have been activated. As well as the existing KU-band transponders, future Starlink satellites will carry KA and V-band transponders, together with inter-satellite laser links to allow signals to bounce between spacecraft in orbit rather than going through ground stations. However, although this all sounds great for the future of the internet, astronomers are concerned about the effect thousands of these little satellites will have on their ability to study the universe. The train of 60 of these satellites can already be seen crawling across the night skies, taking about 10 minutes to cross from horizon to horizon. And because optical astronomy requires long exposure times, these trains of satellites will cause streaks of bright lines which will corrupt scientific observations. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. Adani is now just one step away from starting construction on one of the country's largest coal mines after the Queensland government approved a crucial environmental plan to protect an endangered bird species. The problem is, despite the government's approval, scientists with the University of Queensland say the proposed site for Adani's Carmichael coal mine is the best remaining habitat for the black-throated finch, an endangered species that has lost over 80% of its original habitat. In fact, Adani's black-throated finch management plan has received a scathing review from threatened species experts across Australia and from the black-throated finch recovery team. The Queensland State Labor government's approval plan follows last month's convincing defeat of Labor in the federal election. In fact, in Queensland, federal Labor won no seats north of Brisbane. Researchers warn there's no scientific evidence that offsets could mitigate the loss of the black-throated finch's existing habitat. Scientists say the findings mean that without genuine efforts to stop the loss of crucial habitat for the endangered species, Australia will continue to lead the world in species extinctions. Meanwhile, separate studies by the CSIRO and Geoscience Australia examining the proposed mine's groundwater management scheme have also identified inadequacies in those plans. Intelligence experts say China is behind a massive cybersecurity breach at the Australian National University. The breach has compromised the personal details of thousands of students and staff members. The hack, which accessed up to 19 years' worth of personal data, is believed to be part of a plan by Beijing to recruit ANU students and university alumni as informants. The ANU provides graduates throughout Australia's public service, including its scientific, intelligence and security agencies. This latest breach follows a similar hack in February, that targeted the federal government's parliamentary computer system, as well as one last year also targeting the ANU, both of which have been attributed to the Chinese government. Speaking of China, a new study warns that Beijing will double its nuclear arsenal within the next 10 years. The grim forecast by the chief of the US Defense Intelligence Agency, Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, describes Beijing's actions as the most rapid expansion and diversification of its nuclear arsenal in Chinese history. 
Ashley says China launched more ballistic missiles for testing and training last year than the rest of the world combined. A new study has concluded that the nuclear device detonated by North Korea in 2017 had a yield equivalent to 250 kilotons of TNT, creating an explosion 16 times the size of the Hiroshima bomb which helped end World War II. The nuclear test caused a magnitude 6.3 earthquake. The new study by the US takes into account the geology of the test site to estimate the size of the explosions from distant seismic records of the blast. Before 2017, nuclear weapons tested by North Korea were all in the range of 1 to 20 kilotons. So the 2017 test indicates a huge upstep in power. You can read the report's findings in full in the journal Geophysical Research, Solid Earth. Meanwhile, a German intelligence agency has warned that North Korea's nuclear partner Iran remains fully committed to a program of weapons of mass destruction. The news follows earlier German claims that Iran's secretive nuclear weapons program means the Islamic Republic could have a strong nuclear capability within a year. It says Tehran's rocket development program is also advancing quickly. This could ultimately allow it to use nuclear-tipped missiles with a range of over 3,200 kilometres. Last year, the United States pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, citing multiple violations by Tehran, including its ongoing sponsorship of terrorist organizations such as Hezbollah and Hamas, and its continuing efforts to secretly develop nuclear weapons. However, in response, the Orich nation insists its nuclear program is for peaceful power generation only. A new study has confirmed something dog owners have long known. If you're all stressed out, your dog will feel stressed out too. The findings, published in the journal Scientific Reports, shows that dogs really do mirror the anxiety level of their owners. To reach their conclusions, researchers measured levels of the stress hormone cortisol both in dogs and in their human owners over the course of a year and then matched them to pooch personality questionnaires filled out by their owners. They found dogs' personalities weren't affecting their owners' stress levels and that suggested the dogs were instead responding to the stresses felt by their owners and not the other way around. Apple says if you're still using an iPhone 6, 6 Plus or 5S, you won't be getting its new iOS 13 operating system. It's understood Apple is discontinuing support of these devices because they only have a 1GB RAM, whereas all newer models have at least 2GB. To find out more, we're joined by Alex Horosh from Whistleout.com. This week, Apple announced iOS 13, which is the latest version of its iPhone operating system. It's going to have some great new features like a dark mode, but there's bad news if you're still using an iPhone 6, an iPhone 6 Plus, or an iPhone 5S. Your phone's almost at the end of its life. Following the announcement of iOS 13, Apple confirmed that this trio of devices won't be getting the new update, which means they're essentially reached the end of their life. So what does that mean? There are security implications there, I guess, and there are also implications in terms of the system just won't be as reliable as it is? Or The biggest issue is that, I guess, the iPhone 6, the iPhone 6 Plus and the iPhone 5S won't get any new features and they're unlikely to ever get any more security updates. So while iOS is a reasonably secure operating system, the longer software is left unsupported, they'll have a chance of someone discovering a vulnerability is. And if, like, if there's a major vulnerability found in an old version of iOS, Apple is maybe the kind of company that would go back and address it if it is something vulnerable and if they see it is something really dangerous and probably address that, especially if there's still a number of people using that. But the iPhone 6 has been around for about five years and the iPhone 5S has been around for about six years 
now. So, and they've seen like four and five major operating system updates each, which is really good in terms for smartphones. Most flagship Android smartphones are likely to see two. Hmm. So while it does kind of suck if you've got an iPhone 6 or an iPhone 5S, the phones have had a pretty good run. That's Alex Horosh from whistleout.com. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favorite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 